Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, thank you for tuning in. My name is Brian Holland, Senior Research Analyst at Cowan, focused on sustainable food and healthy living. I am here today with Fresh Pet CEO, Billy Sear. Since Billy's arrival in September 2016, the company sales have increased by nearly 250% with annual growth on track to accelerate for a fourth consecutive year in fiscal 21. His Feed the Growth initiative, whereby considerable media investment built visibility for a brand with strong consumer loyalty but minimal awareness, created a virtuous cycle which continues to strengthen Fresh Pet's model today. Today, we'll talk to Billy about how the business has progressed over the past five years, how it is performing today, and how it is positioned for the next five years and beyond. Billy, thank you so much for joining me. If you don't mind, we'll dive right in. Great. It's always a pleasure, Brian. Over the past four years, you've demonstrated proof of concept on Feed the Growth. And to date, your biggest limiting factor to growth has been capacity. As you execute the scaling of Kitchens 2.0, the question du jour from investors today is whether you can successfully execute this in the current environment. So two questions. One, what have been the primary challenges ramping 2.0, both from an internal and a macro standpoint? And two, where do we stand today in terms of progress relative to what's been communicated? Really good question. First of all, in terms of the progress we've made and how we feel about Kitchens 2.0, what it's taught us, the way I think about it is, first of all, it's a really remarkable achievement for our organization to have, to have completed construction and done the startup of facility in the middle of a pandemic. It speaks volumes about the depth and the capability of our, our manufacturing and engineering team and their ability to work under pretty difficult or adverse circumstances. Uh, so that's been an amazing achievement. And then you think about getting through a start in the midst of or the depths of the pandemic, that's pretty amazing. The biggest challenge for us in getting through this has been, frankly, the people side of it. It has not been the technology or the engineering side. We clearly learned as we went along, but in the middle of the pandemic when we had lots of people, and then as we came out of that into an environment where there's very uh, tough uh, labor dynamics, meaning it's a tight labor market, to keep up demand as we scale the facility and probably the biggest challenge. Having said that, if you had told us at the beginning of this project when we first announced it, that within one year of starting up Kitchens 2.0, we would be operating 24-7 on both lines and basically have maxed out the capacity, I would have told you you're crazy. But that's a testament to the growth that we've been able to get on this business. In terms of what have we learned and how's it performing, what I can tell you is that it's delivering everything we thought it would. Uh, the reality is we expect it to get significant increase in throughput from uh, speeding up of the lines and the capacity to the individual lines. So remember, this was focused on automation to increase, lower the cost, improve the safety, and improve the quality. And we're delivering on all those metrics. And this is the foundation that we're using for building Fresh Pet Kitchens in 3.0 in NS Texas. And so all the technology is turning out to deliver what we thought. And that's what has given us the confidence to raise our estimated uh, projection of how much net sales we could get off of each of these lines when we build them in Ennis, Texas. Uh, so we used to say that it was going to be 100 million per line. We're now showing that three lines will deliver us $400 million in net sales capacity. And that's frankly given by, driven by the comfort we've gotten with the technology as it's being practiced in Kitchens 2.0. I was fortunate to tour Kitchens 2.0 with you last week in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. There were three elements which stood out to me. 
One, uh, the higher throughput, which you just discussed. Uh, two, the improved cost structure that comes as a result of that throughput against similar headcount to, to 1.0. And then three, how it all ties together to create what appears a formidable manufacturing moat. I won't spend much time on throughput. You just talked about that. But two years ago, you discussed how 2.0 would deliver 600 basis points of margin improvement on fresh pet uh, from the fresh from the kitchen line. So, so where are we on that path? And aside from throughput, what are the leverage points? Yeah. So first of all, if you kind of peel back the startup costs and you peel back some of the sort of temporary inefficiencies that we've described, we are seeing everything we expected to deliver that 600 basis point improvement on fresh from the kitchen. We're also seeing a little bit of improvement on the roasted meals part of the lineup as well. We're getting the incre- increase in throughput versus what we had expected. Uh, so we feel very comfortable about it. It's not evident when you look at our financials. You're gonna, we're going to have to let the, t- the clock run a little bit further to get past the startup period. Uh, but we're very confident that we're seeing, uh, seeing those benefits. Um, the, we think, you know, going forward, the other parts of the, of the operation here are the improvements in the quality of the product. There's numerous things that we've done that we've designed in the operation that'll enhance quality that are really hard to put a, you know, a specific dollar value on, you know, but what we know is that the things that we're doing will reduce the amount of rework that we have to do. It'll increase the likelihood of consumer satisfaction a reduced amount of product that we have that ultimately ends up being unsaleable for any of a variety of reasons, uh, you know, some sort of quality defect or something like that, or a consumer calls us and has an issue with the product. All those things are hard to put a dollar value on, but all those are very, very real. And we expect that we're going to get significant benefits for those over time. In addition, it also demonstrates how much, how difficult it is for somebody to match what we're doing, because what we're doing is not easy. And all these barriers that we put in, every one of these improvements we make becomes yet one more piece of knowledge that we have that somebody else has to learn for themselves. And so I think when we put all this together, the punchline when discussing the company's manufacturing mode is that Fresh Pet has roughly 23 weeks of shelf life for refrigerated fresh product. Strikes me as awfully difficult to replicate a comparable quality, cost, and scale. How have you achieved this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a million things that we do right, not necessarily a million, but a lot of things you have to do right uh, to get to a product that in a refrigerated supply chain can have the product shelf life that we have. But having that shelf life is very important to us and to our customers and to the consumer. It's really a focus on sanitation. We do an incredibly good job of sanitation. We control temperatures, we control pressures, we control uh, cook time. Uh, moisture content, all kinds of elements of the product formulations that are all essential for us to end up delivering the product that we deliver. It's not one thing. It's not two things. It's more like 50 or 100 things that we have to do consistently right to produce a product that has that kind of quality. And as we roll this forward to Kitchens 3.0, you and your team appear awfully excited about the opportunity here with this next facility in Ennis, Texas. What are the one, two, three things that you've uncovered in the evolution from Kitchens 1.0 to Kitchens 2.0 that allows you to take another incremental step in the evolution of your manufacturing capabilities? Where would you point to specifically? So Kitchens 1.0 was how do you put a production line or production lines, in this case, there are now four of them in Kitchens 1.0, in a defined amount of space that was fairly tightly constrained and also the company was somewhat capital constrained at the time. Kitchens 2.0, there was significantly more capital, significantly more space to put the lines in, but the configuration was still somewhat constrained by the footprint 
of the existing building on the site and then the available land that we could expand the building. Uh, so we're really working with a you know, predetermined footprint. Think of it as we have two buildings, one 100,000 square feet, a second one that's 150,000 square feet sitting on 15 acres of land in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. When we go to the facility in Texas, what we get is in essence a blank sheet of paper. We have 70 acres of land on which we're able to put this facility and it's you know, a flat piece of land. So it allows us to start from scratch and lay it out in the most optimal way for flow, for sanitation, for safety, for quality. And so there's several things that we're gonna do there that are designed to improve our operating flexibility, improve our ability to maintain control of the quality of the product and lower our cost in operations. And it basically starts with being able to work with a completely blank sheet of paper. The equipment that goes inside is very comparable to the equipment we have in Kitchens 2.0. And that gives us confidence that, we'll, confidence that we'll know how to start it up and run it. But everything else around it is laid out completely differently and in ways that are gonna give us some significant step ups in the quality that we produce. Consumers and customers don't like to see out of stocks. So let's take this in two parts. First, what are consumers doing when they can't find fresh pet where they're accustomed to? And do you have any handle on how much this has impacted either attrition among existing households or hindered your ability to convert new households? So the first part of that question, we've gotten a, quite a bit of data about consumers' preferences and their habits as they sort of go through things. And you know, if they show up at the store shelf and the product they're looking for isn't there, what do they do next? It's also interesting is that now that we you know, have a fair amount of product that is being moved through the, you know, the curbside pickup programs where you either have Instacart or the retailer doing things, uh, the consumer has to give the shopper direction as to what to do if the item they want is there. And it gives you fairly good insight as to what the customer's priorities are. Should they buy another item? Should they not buy anything at all? How should they think about that? And the data we've got suggests that the first thing the consumer does if they can't find the item they're looking for is they move to another item in our lineup. If they can't find another item in our lineup to buy, the reality is that the odds are they're not gonna buy something else. They're not gonna buy something in that store. And the typical consumer that we're seeing uh, tends to end up going to um, uh, up to three stores before if they haven't found it in the third store, they basically give up. We hope that they don't have to go to three stores to find it, but that's what the consumer's doing. They're willing to go to three different stores or different outlets in order to buy uh, uh, the fresh fed item they're choosing. Any sense about lost opportunity to convert new households? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that the U.S. there's two parts of that question. One is, are we losing anybody that we have? And then the question is, lost opportunity to get new ones. It's hard to tell if we're losing any of the existing users. We're, I'm sure that we're frustrating some number of the consumers, and, and we really don't want to do that, and we don't want to do that to our customers either. So the reality is that there's some amount of that. I haven't been able to quantify that in any material way at this point. I think the bigger issue is the, the inability to attract as many new users as we would like, because if you see the ads, you hear about the brand, you go to the store and you can't find an item, you know, any, any item at all, or the item that's most relevant to you, uh, that's a little hard. I mean, give you an example of that. We put a priority on our production on producing the most pounds of product that we can possibly produce to meet the, the largest share of demand that's out there because we just don't want the dogs going hungry. We want families being frustrated by their inability to find things. Well, what that means is that you're less likely to find some of our smaller sizes because we can produce more pounds by putting in larger sizes. And so if you walk up to the fridge, you're more likely to find larger sizes than smaller sizes. And that can be a little bit frustrating for somebody who's trying to brand for the first time. The second thing is that as we've gone through the second half of this year, 
uh, our capacity is a little bit more robust on the roll side than it is on the bag side. So we're get, you're more likely to encounter a fridge that is gonna have a six pound chicken roll in it than you are to find a, uh, a small size of a bag product. And that's also gonna be a little bit difficult to get somebody to enter the franchise because it limits them in terms of form. They're more likely to only have roles. And if they're not somebody who finds the role attractive, that kind of limits the options. So I think what we've had is a, the, the, the downside of the capacity constraints is the challenges in attracting new users. The good news is that when we've been in this spot before, we found is that they come back or not they come back, but you, the interest remains and people try us at some point down the road when there is an ample supply. So we're optimistic that as our capacity builds and our in-store conditions improve, we're gonna see more consumers coming into the store and trying fresh pet for the first time or picking up a habit that that may have been an incidental purchase before, but now becomes a routine purchase. And regarding your customers, as we move into year-end 2021 and further beyond that, 2022, how do you convince customers that you're ready to handle the next leg of uh, distribution growth that in theory is available to you? And what can you tell investors to provide some comfort that retailers have not or will not tune you out? I've had to answer this question from some of the senior leadership at some of our larger customers, and they've all asked, you haven't been uh, doing a very good job of supplying us for the last year. What gives you faith that you can do this going forward? And we show them the same information that we're sharing with our investors, which is the capacity that we're bringing online in the next two years. And you look at it, and, and if you're a customer, uh, their thought that's going to go through their mind is, if this is a, call it $445 million, uh, that's our guidance for this year, net sales business, and they're building capacity that between now and 2025 goes to $2 billion, the, you, the question in their mind is, how much of that is going to be shoppers in my stores? So they have a choice. They obviously don't want to put a fridge in and have it be empty. On the other hand, if they're convinced that we're building that capacity, they don't want to have uh, the shoppers going to their competitor stores. And that's the choice that, that they're faced with. And they make that decision for themselves as to which way they want to go. But we just have to show them all the investments that we're making, you know, show them pictures of what our facility in Ennis, Texas looks like, show them, you know, that we're putting a new line in every quarter for the next eight quarters, start the new line every quarter for eight quarters, and probably beyond that by the time we get there. And I think when people look at it and they go, okay, demand has been through the roof. It's been tough to keep up because of the high demand and also because of all the pandemic-related supply challenges. Um, but this is real. This is not you know, phantom stuff. This is real capacity coming online, and I need to get a share of it. So you're comfortable with how Kitchens 2.0 is scaling, confident in the strength of your relationship with consumers and customers. Let's tie this together. If your capacity situation improves and retailers continue to support you, the company can spend more on advertising and resume fridge placements. I want to talk about the amplifying effects, bringing your various drivers of awareness and visibility together to engage new households. You and I have spoken about this, uh, Billy, offline several times in the past few years. We, we've talked about other similar business models where you reach that point where you almost get a multiplying effect uh, when you reach a certain point of awareness and visibility. Where is Fresh Pet in that journey? Yeah, we, we talk about the Rogers diffusion of innovation curve and the takeoff point. Clearly, Fresh Pet has reached that takeoff point. Takeoff point is not a moment in time. It's sort of a period in time, and it extends over an extended period of time. Um, and we're clearly at that point where others are taking actions that are in their own economic self-interest that accelerate our growth. So retailers are putting us in more stores. 
people who write uh, reviews of products online are reviewing our products because they know they have readers who are interested in our products. It's a very relevant topic for their readership. Uh, and we're finding lots and lots of that uh, kind of independent activity happening. You know, this, uh, if you're talking to a friend, there's social currency and telling them about your experience with Fresh Pet. It's a highly interesting and relevant topic for pet parents. And so we're, we're on that uh, point where everything takes off and works harder for us. And so our challenge is obviously is to keep up with it. But we also view it as a, there's amplifying effect, as you described it, where as we get higher visibility and awareness, that creates greater velocity for the retailers. It gives them the incentive to put more fridges in more stores and put bigger fridges in the stores and second fridges and third fridges. And that allows us to put a broader product lineup in the stores that appeals to a wider range of users. And the combination of all that results in a much larger consumer franchise. And it's like a flywheel going around. When we described the feed the growth virtuous cycle uh, early on in 2017, people tended to look at it like it was a racetrack. You get on the track and you go around, and you, you know, you get to 200 miles an hour and you just keep going at 200 miles an hour. It's really much more of an accelerator. You know, it's like a flywheel. The first time around we went, you know, went around it, our growth was like 17%. The next time we rounded our growth was 24%. The next time you go around is 30%. You can just see how it accelerates because each step builds on the last one. And we think that has several more years of growth uh, in it. And the big challenge is just building capacity to keep up with it. Two obvious ways I could think of for a company to engage non-adopters, advertising and innovation. So start with the former. How has your media strategy evolved? Where is there white space for Fresh Pet across the various consumer demographics? You know, uh, our marketing team does a remarkable job. We've got some pretty deep bench of talent and some really good outside partners. And we're always trying to think at least a year, if not 18 months ahead, in terms of our advertising development, our media plan development. And we're always testing that ahead so that by the time we get into a year or into the next period, what we can, we know what the outcome is going to be because we validated the tools. So about three years ago, we or two years ago, I guess it is uh, at this point, we made a conscious decision to move our target audience younger. Uh, so we went from more of a mainstream, you know, 18 to 49 kind of target audience, and we deliberately reached down into millennials and Gen Z. Uh, we believe that that was a very fertile audience for us. And we were just questioning whether the media mix that we were using of 70% broadcast and 30% digital social was going to work. And we found it worked incredibly well. Last year, uh, we started testing against a target audience that was men. So we did some stuff in football. We, you know, NCAA college football, or uh, we did um, the NFL. Now we had supply interruptions in there. So we really didn't get to do a whole lot of tests, but we've done more of that this year. And what we can tell you is each time we've brought on a new target audience, you know, first millennials and Gen Z, now men, what we're finding is that we're getting really strong payback for the advertising investment we're making against those audiences. There are more audiences out there for us to go after. I don't want to get into a whole lot of detail about what they would be. But other than to say that we've proven is obviously pets are very appealing. There's a very large number of households who have pets. So it's not like we're limited in the number of audiences we can go after. The question is, who are the people who are interested in the fresh pet food version of it? And what we're finding is that interest is growing and it's already very large. You introduced a new brand, Spring and Sprout, which will launch in 900 Petco stores this month in front of a broader rollout in 2022. What is this line's purpose? And looking forward, what are the biggest unmet needs among pet parents Fresh Pet has yet to solve for? And how are they ultimately addressable by your brand? Well, Spring and Sprout is part of our efforts to move into the households, particularly the millennial and Gen Z households, 
but um, the interest and appeal in that audience for products that uh, have the attributes of being either environmentally more friendly, more sustainable, uh, in this case, the also the ethical treatment of animals, uh, it becomes critically important. And so that is finding an audience and finding a need that's not being met currently by uh, existing pet foods. And that's what Spring and Sprout does for us. Um, it really makes us increasingly relevant to that millennial Gen Z audience. And we have many more opportunities for that audience uh, in terms of product innovation that we're working on. Our track record of innovation is remarkably good. You know, going back to the very beginning, the whole brand is an innovation. Fresh from the Kitchen was launched in 2015 and really uh, extended the appeal of the product into more human-like food. We launched Homestyle Creations, which targets people who do home cooking for their pet. We launched a small dog version, uh, a product that was appropriate for people with small dogs. We've launched Sensitive Skin and Stomach, uh, product for uh, people who have a pet with one of those issues. And so we think there's a very wide range of those kinds of issues. The one that a lot of people ask us about and one that we are you know, focusing on is larger dogs. Uh, our franchise skews a little bit smaller. We want to move into a larger dog format. It's just going to take a little bit of time and on our innovation efforts, but we've got some leads that might enable that. You talked about this a few times during the course of our conversation thus far, but one of the big reveals, I think, over the past 12 to 24 months is Gen Z, their affinity for pets in general and the fresh pet brand in particular. I believe last year, household penetration growth by cohort over-indexed to Gen Z by something like two to one, uh, which is obviously encouraging as we think about the proliferation of Gen Z entering adulthood over the next decade. We spent a bunch of time on this angle in our, our recent initiation, and we'll have more opportunities, obviously, to probe this subject in the coming months and years. My question for right now is how is this demographic behaving relative to Fresh Pet's early adopters? Are you seeing a similar uh, loyalty to early adopters? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have to start with what is the consumer journey or the experience that they're going through. So first of all, the dogs that they, they have tend to be representative of the, of the dogs that everybody else has. They don't skew deliberately one way in terms of size, small to large. If anything, there might be a little bit of a skew uh, towards medium-sized dogs, but it's not, it's not a huge skew. But their dogs skew younger. So we're dealing with a franchise, not a surprise that it's got dogs that are, you know, more likely to be a puppier in the one to three year age range than they are to be uh, significantly older. And that kind of makes sense. So you have to think about what the, what those needs are. Then you start thinking about where is it they want to buy their pet food. There's been a lot of discussion about how that audience buys everything online. Uh, but the reality is this is an audience that's also incredibly experiential. They look for things that have an experience value to it. And uh, so they are shopping for certain products in certain categories where they have a need for an experience or for information and knowledge. And so we're finding that a decent number of these folks, in fact, a little bit overdeveloped towards the retail presence. They look for the product at retail, in retail outlets a little bit more so than they look for it online. And that's, you know, that's encouraging for the retailers who, uh, who have taken the effort to put a fresh pet fridge in. Beyond that, you know, as we think about how do we reach them, how do we talk to them, our main, main line message, you know, talking about um, the care and concern, the humanization of pets, all those elements that are part of the basic brand franchise are very much important for the same audience. It's, it's just the relationship with the pet is more, um, uh, much more significant, much more meaningful. As we always like to say, the, the dog has gone from being, you know, the, the pet that slept outside to now it's a member of the family, sleeps inside. That's just not a member of family. Now it's your favorite child. And, uh, and for, for Gen Z, the dog is the favorite child. We've been anticipating competitors entering the refrigerated fresh segment of the pet food category for some time. 
and that day finally appears to be upon us, including participation, most notably from the largest pet food company in the world. It would be great to get your perspective on how Fresh Pet believes the competitive landscape will evolve and what are the potential impacts to both the refrigerated fresh segment and your company. Yeah, I mean, we've said all along that with the growth and success of Fresh Pet, we fully expect to have competition arrive. And this is not the first time. The Australians who entered this category have made several attempts to crack the U.S. market. Uh, and in both cases, uh, we outperformed them by a very large margin and they uh, ended up picking up their fresh pet food and going home. So the reality is that um, this is not the first time. And frankly, it's hard. I mean, doing making fresh pet food is a very, very difficult thing to do. And also tapping into the, the needs that the, the consumers in the United States have expressed and the buying habits and the, the relationship they have to their pet, it's a little bit different here than it is in, in some of the other places. And so the reality is we have really optimized Fresh Pet quite a bit for the market. And we expect others to come along and try to replicate what we're doing, but they don't have to replicate just one thing. They have to replicate many, many things, whether it's our manufacturing expertise, the product quality that we produce, the distribution system we have, the refrigerated system that we have, the ability to maintain the fridges. All of those elements are, are in themselves doable, but collectively it's a very, very heavy lift. And you have to keep remembering, you know, if, if there's no reason that a, a retailer would not put a fresh pet fridge in a new store if somebody showed up with, you know, fridges, except for the operational challenges that they face. So you think about it, if you're a retailer today and you have a choice, you say, this category is exploding. It's absolutely exploding. I want to get my share of it. Right now, there's really no barrier other than your own internal operating barriers, you know, space in your store, uh, man hours of labor. Um, you know, allocation resources by the retailer uh, across the entire footprint of the store that keeps you from putting a fresh pet fridge in because we pay for the fridge, we do the wiring, and we do the maintenance of the fridge. So if somebody thinks that somebody else is going to show up and say, oh, by the way, put a fridge in, I got this unproven new entity that I want to bring to the market. I'm not sure why you would do that before you would put in a fresh pet fridge in your store. So I think for somebody to catch up to us, it's going to take a long time because this is not easy. They're finding a way for the retailer to carve out that much more space. It's not an easy thing to do. If it was easy to do, we'd be in 100% ACV at this point. And last question, same topic. I mentioned in the preamble to that question that the largest pet food company in the world appears to have dipped its toe into refrigerated fresh, which presumably gives ammo to both bulls and bears. How do you interpret a category captain moving into your segment? It validates the segment. It frankly says that this segment is very, very real. It's attracting interest. The question isn't whether people are going to enter. We've said that all along. People are going to enter this space. The question is, will they succeed? And as we saw with the Australians when they came, they made two really, really tough, hard runs at it, spent a lot of resources on it, and they didn't succeed. I'm not questioning the capability of others in the, in the category. These are highly capable competitors. We do not underestimate them. On the other hand, what we have took 15 years for the team at Fresh Pet to build, figure out, and develop. And while some things can be replicated, figuring out all the little details that make this whole business model work is tough. And if you put yourself in our shoes, you know, let them try, let them go do what they're doing. The smartest thing that we can do while they're doing that is put our foot on the gas and build a consumer franchise that's as big as it can be, as fast as it can be. Because our ultimate defense, our ultimate barrier to entry is not refrigerators, it's not manufacturing facilities, it's not you know distribution system. The ultimate barrier to defense is a highly loyal consumer franchise. 
People who feed their dog a pet food are very hesitant to change their pet food. And so what they want, you want to do is you want to get the consumer to try fresh pet, develop a habit around it, and then be loyal to the brand. As long as we give them no reason to look elsewhere, we're always available. We have products that meet their needs. We are a good value day in and day out. We think if we do that well, that's the best insulation that we can get. And we just want to get as many those consumers in the franchise as fast as we can. Great. We'll leave it there. I want to thank Billy Sear, Fresh Pet CEO, for joining us today and walking us through his business. Uh, Billy, congratulations to you and your team for all that's been accomplished these past five years. Best of luck going forward. Uh, we look forward to watching your progress in the coming months and years. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.